Following eight years as a criminal barrister in his home city of Liverpool, Frank worked for a decade in the Balkans and throughout the former Soviet Union in international human rights protection, criminal law reform and institution building at the highest levels of government. He developed particular expertise in missing persons, human trafficking and torture prevention. He also served for a number of years as a reserve officer with extensive operational experience, retiring as head of his service branch. Later, he served as the first justice advisor to the UK mission in Helmand province in 2007-2008 and worked in a similar role at the UK embassy in Libya during and after the war there. He also worked in Ukraine during the current war and is the author of several books, including the best-selling Losing Small Wars 2017, which was selected as Book of the Year by The Times and Amazon UK. His aerial warfare book 2018 was placed on the RAF Chief of Air Staff's reading list and was shortlisted as Military Book of the Year by Military History Matters magazine. Frank, welcome to the channel. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. Uh, well, I've I've binged on many of your interviews uh, that I could find online, and uh, I think that's going to make for a lively debate. Let's start with this idea of victory, because it's being debated at the moment, and I think it has to, uh, given the context of how much men and materials are being thrown into trying to achieve Ukrainian victory. But does it mean different things to different people? That's the problem, that... If Ukraine's idea of victory does not, or success, but let's say in their case, victory, that's what they call it, does not align with the United States, I think NATO is irrelevant in this, then we have a structural problem. So I'll give you an example. In March last year, the Secretary of State for Defence, Lloyd Austin, said of the campaign that the objective of for the United States was to ensure to bleed Russia so to ensure that they couldn't do this kind of thing again which isn't a strategy by the way it's simply a, a statement of of, uh, of intent a pending political uh, settlement uh, either that or it's a very disturbing and I, let's let's put it let's put a kind gloss on it let's say that it's a it's not a strategy it's a, a statement of intent uh, pending some form of other resolution Ukraine's theory of victory is entirely different. Its theory of victory is defeat of Russian forces, sweeping them from every square meter of Russian territory, including Donetsk, Luhansk, and most controversially, perhaps we can get onto this Crimea. And that is uh, very clear. And following that, there will be a collapse of the Russian government and a more civilized regime there. That's, that's their ideal. So. Also not really a strategy, more an aspiration, but again, let's not quibble. Then you get the American political, much of the American political elite who see, uh, and I quote Blinken on this, not verbatim, but you can find the reference, that we support Ukraine in its aspirations to retake their land uh, up to Crimea, up to Crimea. Uh, we do not, uh, it's implicit then that they do not or will not support the military reconquest of Crimea. So we have three different approaches in no particular order, at least. What troubles me, by the way, and perhaps we can go on to this, is although this is, I think, now very much on the agenda, is that until quite recently there was no or very little sense of, um, of what then post conflict uh, 
So just, uh, yeah, a what then? Now, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had similarly varying political objectives or political tracks upon which we were supposed to be getting. And that's what, at least dealing with the political aspect of this uh, or of, of, of warfare, there were no clear guide, guidelines for how a military campaign would link up to a, any kind of realistic political settlement in the case of Afghanistan. And in the case of Iraq, the political settlement that was foisted upon the people and still remains foisted upon the Iraqi people has resulted and continues to result in nothing but mayhem. Uh, now, whether that was negligent or deliberate, I go very much for the former. Uh, ignorantly negligent is, is a matter of debate. But the problem here is that US objectives do not align with Ukrainian objectives. And if the summer offensive, as it now is, just to put things, ground things as it were in the present, let's say it goes very well, it's much too early to say whatever some experts are speaking of, uh, then if it goes according to plan, then we may get to a point where those two or three approaches start to collide. And US assistance, uh, well, perhaps we can get to that when we discuss Crimea, but right now there is no clear political track which would be acceptable both to Ukraine and to the United States. And I think Ukrainian's point of view is interesting on this and it comes from a deep local knowledge and we'll come to that in a minute because I think a lack of local knowledge, in fact a lack of even now understanding of Putin's motivations and his mindset um, may be um, leading to policy decisions that are perhaps not realistic. And I think what Ukrainians would say is, well, first of all, we cannot think of even Crimea as being purely Russian. That is a propagandistic line. What you've got is a deported population from that territory. You have many Russians who have been bussed in. They're not natives there at all. Um, the estimate is up to two million. Uh, but also anybody under occupied Russian territory is also suffering. So I think the point of view there is actually we're liberating these people rather than just ejecting the Russians. That that obviously is a humanitarian compulsion. Another argument Ukrainians would make is that anything short of retaking Crimea would not lead to a blatant defeat for Russia would not lead to a collapse of Putin's regime and some kind of internal retribution and would only be, you know, whatever peace deal or whatever frozen conflict emerges from taking everything except Crimea would simply be an invitation for future aggression and for the war being revived just as soon as Russia feels it's got its strength back. Right. And that's why we should be thinking now about how, how to ensure that Ukraine is protected into the medium and long term, something which is just beginning, but has not yet really got any legs. And I've written a couple of articles in various places uh, for what it's worth uh, outlining how that might be done reasonably painlessly um, and relatively cheaply. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's abs absolutely the case. And uh Let's not forget that President Zelensky and Zelensky and the uh, senior leadership in Ukraine have promised their people they will reach that the, 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 the losses that they're sustaining are being sustained in order to to uh, render the land uh, whole again, as it were. 
And then there's a realist, realist political, sort of realistic political problem here because anything short of that, and the country risks in the future, I would suggest, at best political turmoil and at worst perhaps fracture. And now, whether we can put that at the at the feet, as it were, of the Ukrainian senior political leadership is moot because what else can they say but the trouble is i think the ukrainian people believe that their brothers cousins sons uh fathers are dying and uh sustaining serious injury for that purpose and anything less simply won't do now the problem of course from the russian perspective is that whilst i think most russians but this is what i'm fairly sure about, and I'm sure it'd be interesting to uh, eventually to have this confirmed, but most Russians don't believe that Zaporizhia, Kherson, or even Donetsk and Luhansk is part of Ukraine. One Russian opposition figure told me, a good friend of mine, that we don't care about those. And as for places like Zaporizhia and Kherson, it's obvious that that's Ukrainian heartland, almost by definition. But, she said, we all believe Crimea is Russian. Navalny, she said, she's quite close to Navalny, believes Crimea is Russian and indeed has said so publicly. So that is an impasse which you hinted at there, which will only result in thinking at best in a frozen conflict in the medium to long term. Let's be candid about that. Uh, uh, that that's probably where we're headed, even if you, whoever ends up holding, if any, either party do, Crimea. And for that reason, Ukraine will need protecting into that. If we believe what we say about Ukraine moving to the West, as it were, conceptually, Ukraine needs to be protected in such an eventuality, uh, undesirable and suboptimal though it is. And Ukraine is also an integral part of the economic future of Ukraine. Um, so Crimea is an intrinsic part of that. So again, if Russia has this toehold, um, from where it can project power uh, into into the Black Sea, it puts the bulk of Ukraine's economy at risk, at least in terms of raw materials and supply, which is only really economic to deliver uh, by by um, by ship. Um, so there is another form of, I say, economic terrorism. Or if Russia maintains control over that, it can still seek to uh, create, as you say, an area of chaos. It can still seek to try and ensure that Ukraine is perceived as a basket case and, and um, you know, make that case that it's a failed state because they've gone out of their way to try and make sure that it is. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, there's a slight myth about this. There's a, a very large base, as you know, Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula that's been the cause of conflict for now and then every few decades. Um, but... Um, Russia has other naval bases on the Black Sea, uh, and uh, they can operate from there if necessary. It's not <laughs> it's existentially necessary for Russia to be uh, in possession of Sevastopol. It's just found itself found it convenient to, to claim as such. Uh, but but I mean, these are realities that you have this aggressive Eastern power, which is unlikely to stop being aggressive. Whoever ends up and what in whatever form Crimea uh, politically shows itself out to be, which will depend to a considerable extent on 
the military successes of Ukraine over the next few months or perhaps even years. But uh, Russia isn't going away and it will seek. And, and by, by the way, uh, the, uh, my, my Russian opposition friends make it very clear to me, you, you want to be very careful, particularly Ukraine wants to be very careful what they hope for, because it's conceivable there could be a new regime in Russia, but it is hardly conceivable at all, they say, and this is the opposition, that that, that, that new regime will be uh, any anything uh, better than the one that's there now. And on the contrary, it could be considerably worse. And in those eventualities, whether Putin or Putin-like regime remains a worse one regime, a uh, worse one um, comes along, or indeed a better one, that the, the claim on Crimea isn't going away. And Russia as a, as a considerable military power with designs on control over its Western neighbor are unlikely to go away. And that, therefore we have a future, whether we like it or not, of some instability. And uh, uh, there are some answers to that. Uh, all of them depending on the political will, of course, of the EU and especially the United States. I've got my doubts about the latter. I mean, that's an interesting one because that line, I mean, I've, I've been creating a list of, I would call it sort of semi-propagandist and full propagandist lines. And that's a real classic one there, which is the idea that someone worse than Putin can come along. Now, from a Russian perspective, that's entirely possible because at the moment it's still i mean as brutish as it must seem to us from the outside we know that terror inside russia could be ratcheted up a great degree further so of course from the russian opposition perspective yes absolutely there could be someone who's considerably worse from the ukrainian perspective can't really get much worse um than, yeah, than, than the current regime so it's a matter of perspective but that also leads on to other propagandist lines that may be having an influence on Western decision-making. And, of course, one of those is the Kohovka Dam. We see an extraordinary act of ecocide, ecological terrorism, um, targeting, you know, nature, infrastructure, people, communities. I mean, it, it ticks every box, every sort of terroristic, um, one could even say perhaps, a, you know, genocidal box. But the response to that has been particularly ambiguous, weak, and muted. There's no real pushback or ratcheting up of sanctions or any actual action uh, into that. And I'm wondering whether this is really being taken on board. And given Putin's mindset, I mean, Ukrainians, I think, sort of understand this and believe this, but it's not actually widely understood. And that is that Putin escalates where he doesn't meet resistance he will escalate into that space. And here we have a, an extraordinary uh, act of violence for which he's not held culpable. That right. means he may do more. And in particular, Zaporizhia nuclear power station is also supposedly mined. Right. And uh, what the Kharkovskaya um, dam demonstrates is exactly what you've said. It's an, it's an escalatory act, put it lateral, if you like, uh, in that it spreads uh, uh, Russia's or the regime's destructiveness into a new realm. And I've no particular desire to speculate publicly or even really privately on what they may decide to do next. But uh, you mentioned one avenue which is not inconceivable. I don't think we should worry about the instability of the power station itself unless the IAEA tells us to. They're a very capable organisation, but that, of course, is notwithstanding any sabotage or 
or deliberate efforts to render it unstable. So there's a start. Also uh, reflect that Russia has yet to damage severely the links from the West, uh, which would be um, another very escalatory measure. They themselves only this week, we're talking on the 21st of June, mentioned attacking the decision-making centres of, uh, of, of Ukraine and threatened uh, uh, involving NATO powers as well. So all of these are escalatory steps still available for Russia to take, but of course they're extremely self-destructive. Only though, if there is a pushback on this. Let's not forget as well that we've had a couple of, act, of acts which amount to uh, warlike acts, not least the attempting to sh attempted shoot down of a British reconnaissance aircraft, which resulted in, as far as I'm aware, in no pushback at all. Uh, I ignore for the purposes of brevity the, uh, the actual bringing down of, a, of an American reconnaissance aircraft, it wasn't manned, but the attempt to shoot down the British aircraft was very much a, 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 would have constituted an act of war. And as far as I like, I said, I'm repeating myself here, but there was no pushback to that. And of course, as you know, I can't remember who it was who, who said this. It may have been Mao or Lenin or another one of these tyrants that if you push your bay, if you uh, attach yourself, you attack someone with a bayonet, you find the mush and you push and push and push until you find something hard and then you stop and withdraw. Uh, and they are only finding mush with respect to the Khachovska and other, um, well, particularly that uh, act of uh, war criminality. And that's very much, um, I would suggest, as the approach as well of a spy, you know, uh, um, and the mentality that it brings to it. And I guess that's both a strength and a weakness in that Putin is probing, is pushing, is expanding into a vacuum with immoral force. Uh, which we found very difficult to predict his actions because I think we failed to get into his mindset. But I'd love to hear, as a sort of someone who's looking at the sort of military analysis side of it, he is not a military person. So he's also making extraordinary and catastrophic mistakes and misjudgments, isn't he? Yes, resting on advice from, I understand, FSB originally, that's strategic advice, the catastrophic catastrophically wrong strategic advice that the, the army of Ukraine would collapse and the people would eventually uh, uh, welcome uh, the uh, the Russian army. And all of this is symptomatic of, of that syndrome you've described. And we also see it by that, which is a grand strategic syndrome, is it not pushing back, not understanding that there are some uh, regimes, in fact, uh, communist regimes, essentially, or authoritarian, let's say, uh, such as China and Russia, that respond to forcible responses. Uh, we, we see the result of that in, in our face now with, with Ukraine, and we will see it again down the road a couple of year, three years, when China starts to blockade or even uh, uh, directly assault Taiwan, as they continually threaten to do without response. And we see, again, I don't want to get into the Taiwan side, but I follow it very closely, actually, the Taiwan situation. But it's set the same kind of syndrome, that we have politicians in the West who do not understand the utility of force and the utility of force to respond to force and deliver messages and clear messages that behind this force is a will and that will will not be broken by by threats because we understand that ultimately we will prevail for various reasons but our politicians do not seem to understand that and i suspect that comes back as you hint there to the 
to the fact that, that our opponents are hard men. That's what they are. Never mind the gender stuff. They can be hard women. No woman is hard, or no person was ever harder in this respect than Margaret Thatcher, whether you like her or not. Uh, and uh, we, could, uh, we haven't time to get into that. But Putin is a hard man. Xi Jinping, a hard man. Assad, hard men. They respond to force. And in Putin's case, of course, as anyone who knows him, and I've met people who knew him, is a gangster. And gangsters respond to force and bullies respond to force. And unfortunately, force is not what they've met, except in Ukraine, where they really don't understand it when it's effective against them. And it's a zero-sum game, isn't it? So whatever weakens your enemy is good for you. There's no win-win mode of thinking here. And that raises something else you mentioned earlier about the conception of victory. If we don't have a united idea of what victory is, if that is misaligned with Ukrainians, then there's two outcomes to that. One is we don't supply them with the appropriate machinery uh, to deliver that victory. Uh, the other one is that we tie their hands behind their backs. We allow them to um, employ certain strategies with the weapons we provide, but we create a whole series of um, red lines that significantly weaken their strength in executing um, you know, their strategy uh, and cost a tremendous number of Ukrainian lives. And we'll come on to the details of that in a minute. But do you think we're making both of those errors through this war? Absolutely through carefully, careful calibration of weapons, supplies, ensuring that we don't annoy the Russians and don't result in this escalation that everyone's afraid of. And that, I mean, it's beginning to happen now, but it's beginning to happen on Russia's terms. And let me, we will get into the detail of the, the weapons supplies, but I'll just summarise the whole thing by saying, I cannot, and not only me, it's not, I don't have any particular wisdom in this at all, um, but plenty of other people, clever and better informed than me, cannot understand I mean, literally cannot. I mean, if you're going to fight a conventional war, which we are, and a war à l'outrance, as the French used to say, to the limit, so this is, it's an existential war, certainly for Ukraine, who we claim or proclaim as an ally, um, but perhaps even for, well, certainly for Western credibility, then fight it à l'outrance. That means that has certain consequences in terms of the equipment that you supply and, and the determination you put behind that in the form of that supply. Coming to the details of the strategy as well. So the limits we've placed on uh, Ukraine have forced it to be extremely inventive. They have been using drones and equipment that doesn't come within the red lines, i.e. supplied by us or where we have not put those red lines in place for certain equipment. And, you know, they very creatively created a sort of um, an insurgency, a sort of little green men of their own, um, in order to conduct operations on Russian territory. Extremely bold move. Um, they're sending drones, though obviously everyone's seen the one that exploded over the Kremlin, but also the ones that targeted apparatchiks and the sort of rich elite in the suburb of Moscow. So they've been forced to do incredibly creative things to, one, gain advantage, two, to preserve Ukrainian lives. But I wonder what more they could be doing, which perhaps is being restricted because of behind the scenes, uh, you know, signals we're sending them about what we think is acceptable or unacceptable. Well, I'd, li I'd like to, to, to make it clear that uh, the Ukrainians run, uh, let's say, let's call it propaganda, more accurately, information warfare risks 
and, and doing things like flying drones into residential areas of Moscow. One understands why they do it to, to deliver the message that no one is safe and that your air defences can't defend you. But the problem is there when you have three or four little girls killed is whether they are killed or not, they will be, if you see what I mean. Um, uh, the, the, and then, the, then the, the, the message to the undecided, insofar as there are any, but there are plenty of people in the global south who would uh, would take a message from, from dead civilians in Moscow. It's a dangerous game to play. However, the, you know, there are plenty of military targets, let's say, that the Ukrainians could strike. They had, they, I thought that the attack on the Engels Air Base, which should and probably was, or should have been anyway, the best defended military asset that the Russians have west of the Urals, uh, notwithstanding their uh, silos, which are, are in the Urals, and in the north of the country. But the attack on, on Engels Air Base, inventive as it was with an ancient uh, drone that the Ukrainians jerry-rigged up, was, was, a, was the kind of thing that they should be doing a lot more of. And in terms of other uh, targets, we could speak of radar, uh, strategic radar stations in, in Sevastopol, in, yeah, just north of Sevastopol, actually. Uh, we could speak of all the air bases hitting them again and again in in Crimea to get, get plenty of messages within that and continuing the campaign against Sevastopol Naval Base. I think they should do their best to avoid attacking potentially civilian targets purely for the taking into account the fact that these campaigns, so-called strategic campaigns against them, absolutely never work. And I just give you the one example, which is the most apposite. The winter campaign against the Ukrainian people, trying to, 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 to freeze them to death, all that resulted in extra determination. Um, so avoiding civilian ties, I think, is quite quite important for the message uh, and preserving uh, Ukrainian, um, let's say, uh, impunity in that respect. But there's plenty of uh, military targets to be having a go at, like Engels Air Base and plenty others, because the Russians can't defend everything. They don't have the assets for that. And do you think the insurgency, and I thought the insurgency acts around the border areas are particularly inspired, but of course they run a significant risk of harming civilians. But some interesting things emerged from that. I mean, one, it's emerged that you can conduct these operations and there's almost no pushback and that Putin has sent everything to the front lines, equipment, troops, everything, and there's no real you know, uh, border security left. So that undermines the very idea that this war is there to improve Russian security, quite the opposite. So that that perhaps is what the Ukrainians intend by it. The perhaps shocking outcome is to realize that actually somebody in Moscow doesn't actually care. You know, not only do they not really care about people in Donbass, they actually don't care about their own people. Um, you know, the Russians over generations have had a, an empathy bypass, let's say, because of the acts of their government decided to, you know, really to destroy all political relations, destroy all relations outside the immediate family and political organization. And you now see this at play. The Russians have almost no sympathy for, for each other uh, if they're a couple of hundred miles away. So to some if, effect, do you think, I mean, is that strategy something that's not going to work or could the insurgency strategy uh, pull Russian troops back from the front and have some kind of uh, positive effect of saving Ukrainian lives by you know, depleting the uh, Russian strength on the front lines. That's an interesting historical question, Jonathan, as to whether the, the, the you know the Rus this Russian lack of empathy and uh, uh, political disconnection and goes right back into the 1630s. You know, and the 
before that, the time of troubles, when essentially in the 1630s, I think it was 1630s, the entire population was enslaved. Uh, something that was only revoked partially in the 1860s. But yeah, anyway, uh, I think this is what the, the, um, the Belgorod incidents, if we can call them that, a bit dangerous uh, presentation, because I think if there were freedom fighting insurgents, that would be one thing. The trouble is that these guys, everybody knows in Russia and, and in, frankly in Ukraine who these people are. You know, the League of Russian Liberty are not, uh, are not uh, liberal Democrats in our sense. They're more liberal Democrats in the Russian sense, which is to say the Zhirinovsky uh, far-right and a genuinely far-right uh, Nazi-leaning uh, thugs. And that's a dangerous game for the Ukrainian military intelligence to be playing in view of the messaging that it gives uh, now clearly not so much to Ukrainians, but definitely to Russians. So uh, you know, one caveat on that, and it's, I think it's a bit dangerous to use them. But certainly the idea of behind the lines sabotage and what have you, of the kind, by the way, that's starting to happen in Belarus, where the, where the insurgents and the forest um, brothers, if you like, to coin a Baltic phrase, are very much, very much not associated with Nazi sympathizing extremists. That would be the kind of uh, approach to take. I mean, that's a grand strategic question to discuss, I suppose, at the you know, secret level for people way above my level of, well, I don't have any level of clearance, but um, the idea is good. I think the execution in that case might have been a little bit doubtful. I think the the, the Ukrainians' uh, challenge is, is the material they have to work with, isn't it? And uh, the <laughs> liberal elite, uh, you know, the liberal intelligentsia that you mentioned earlier, um, are very Europeanized to an extent in that they don't have this hunger to don a uniform and necessarily go and fight for those values. And so you're kind of hard pushed to find a, a strong contingent of liberal Russians who are going to form a regiment, unfortunately. They, yeah. You know, you've got fairly poor materials to work with, whereas Belarus seems to be a far more interesting strategy. And, you know, obviously we don't have any sort of clearance, but I would have thought toppling Lukashenko, destabilizing that northern front would have been a key strategy for Ukraine and a, and a huge blow to Putin's uh, alliance um, uh, during this invasion. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to quite a few Belarusian friends about this in the opposition there, or and they're not there, but they, they, they take the view that Lukashenko is being very careful about this because the, I mean, whilst the Belarusian army is of no military or virtually no military consequence, the idea that any of it would, would, would cross the border to attack Ukraine would, would, would result in, in, in it depends on who, whose assessments you buy, but you, you know of the elections in Belarus in 21, they didn't go well for Lukashenko at all. There's, plenty, there's a huge constituency in that country, rather sophisticated country, which knows full well where they are, so where they are politically, and that uh, they, the Belarusian people simply won't accept that, and that the, the regime will be toppled, which partially explains, I suspect, not an expert on this, partially explains the fact that Belarus is caveat the rather rash deployment of nuclear weapons, which we'll perhaps come to, um, is being rather careful on this, confining their involvement, both, I think, direct and indirect militarily to training, which is what the Belarusian army is doing at the moment. And there's, there's lots of rumours and so on. I mean, one of those is that the Belarusians are not being given the codes to launch any of those missiles because Russia would... Uh, fear them being fired back on themselves if uh, Lukashenko fell. Um, but it's it's an interesting situation there. And turning again to this, this other strategy, so Russia seems to have dug in 
actually quite effectively and, and, and learned some of the lessons uh, of the last year or so, um, which is surprising because perhaps we thought that they, they were incapable of learning lessons. Um, and they are clearly going to make it extremely painful in terms of equipment and life for Ukraine to take back uh, territory in Zaporizhia and, and so on. And it's not quite a Maginot line, but they certainly have some strategies in place that make it difficult and costly. We know, however, how the Maginot line and all these sort of concepts defeated, you go around the back. Um, and this, you know, are we again tying Ukraine's hands behind their back, preventing them from taking the obvious military strategy, which is to take a shortcut through Russian territory to 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 basically take apart these defensive measures rather than tackling them head on. Yeah, that would be called the indirect approach. It's a 1930s British phrase. Uh essentially speaking about much the same thing that you you attack where your enemy is uh, is weakest destabilize them in that way just to cover off just the belarusian nuclear thing i think very briefly if i might join in the uh the you know clearly it's saber rattling and uh, and mess uh, not even message very poor messaging but the fact is that the belarus if, if if the belarusians have those bombs i don't think they've been given missiles but if they have the bombs with uh nuclear um warheads on them they have not got delivery systems that can put them anywhere without being shot down very quickly by ukrainian air defenses they, they simply don't have that and the um the suhoi aircraft that they do have a couple of dozen of them are old uh, decrepit and certainly not capable of that kind of uh, of, of that kind of delivery uh, so we, we needn't worry about the belarusian nuclear weapons again the point you made about them being turned on the Russians is very well taken. I suspect, the, in fact, certainly the codes are in Russian hands. But even if there was release given by, assuming of good faith, which is a completely ungrounded assumption uh, in the assertion that this is a Belarusian uh, asset, even if those codes were delivered to the Belarusians, they couldn't deliver those weapons. But as to the the defences, yes, uh, I mean, I don't know where they would strike the Russians as it were, uh, in an oblique or indirect fashion. But one of the fears that one has, this is goes back um, quite a few weeks once we started to realise that these defences were significant, at least formidable, is the example of the Battle of Kursk. So the Maginot example is one where you went round them. It's difficult to see whether Ukrainians could go round them without hitting Belgorod and Rostov might be quite difficult and involve logistical problems and air power and all the rest of that. But um, going straight through them is a really difficult task. You know, the Germans in Kursk, nine, July 1943, had uh, faced similar uh, defences with air superiority, which they won on the first day, and, uh, and ground to a halt after 10 days and were forced to withdraw against a counterattack. I don't see a counterattack from the Russians, but the problem is you can get, you can culminate, as it were, too early in that kind of operation, find yourself stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I am certain that that is now the major concern of General Sierski, who's commanding this operation now. There's been an operational pause, which you would expect. We're on the 21st of June here. That's what you expect. This is not a defeat. It's not a failure. It's an operational pause. I was in Kiev four weeks ago. I'm going to be there again next week. They told us four weeks ago, and they'll tell us next week, that do not expect one operation here. This is going to be a series of difficult bite-and-hold operations, which will take a long time. 
nobody must be deceived or gulled into thinking that this we expect or anyone else expects this to be a, 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 either easy or or or, or take a, or, or brief. So this is exactly what we'd expect. You're going to expect losses. You're going to expect dynamic defences. You're going to expect that the Russians have learned lessons. This is not a surprise to Ukraine. They expected this and they declared as much last time I was listening to them directly in person. But there are historical precedents, which no doubt certainly the Ukraine would be aware of, that they're going to need to take into account, as well as the realities on the ground of breaching defences like that. I think they will do that. It's just going to be costly and it'll take a long time. And how far do you think Ukrainian caution here and tactics are influenced not just by the objectives that we talked about, their maximalist objectives to retake every inch of territory, how far they are they also informed by the need to preserve life and be economical with their human and physical resources? Yeah, that's interesting. I've spoken to a couple of authorities in one particular authority in Kiev who mentioned that they thought that they, between uh, certain individuals in, in Ukrainian command, there were different approaches. So the newer, uh, this is second-hand, uh, I can't vouch for it myself, I'm not spoken to the officers concerned, but there's uh, a thinking that the some of the older uh, officers with Soviet uh, uh, initial training, a much more ruthless and brutal approach, uh, take a, a not casualty averse, let's say, very much in that Soviet tradition of the Second World War. We need to achieve the objective, the casualties will happen, they're unfortunate, we just need to get it done. Vis-a-vis -vis perhaps some more younger commanders who take a different view. Now, I don't know if that's true, to be candid with you. It sounds reasonable to me that you're going to have those schools of thought in any military, particularly in a, a military that is commanded by people who, who, who had their formation, if you like, in the Soviet system. Uh, I think it's a myth as well, by the way, and we have to accept this, that the Ukrainian army is some sort of avatar of the US army, the British army, with mission command, strong NCO cadres, and, uh, uh, and essentially well, the US aren't casualty averse, but, it, but having a, a more Western approach to these things, they're not. It's, they, they have their own traditions, they have their own approach, which is influenced to some extent by the training they've undergo undergone and the influence that they've had over the last eight or nine years. Uh, yeah, nine years now. But uh, we mustn't overstate that. They have their own traditions and that will have an impact on, on how they conduct operations. And the, the token of that, of course, as you know, is Bakhmut, where, they, where, where the view was, we're going to take casualties there. It might be a one-way trip into that cauldron. But the reason we're doing that is to dish out far more casualties to the Russians and, and destabilise their, their uh, 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 command structure in doing so, which to some extent they did. And destroy okay. Wagner, PMC, exactly. which they seem exactly. to have done yeah. politically and physically. Right, exactly, yeah. So you can see the strategic approach there, but, but, but there was nothing casualty-averse about it. So I think their problem isn't so much casualties. I think they've got the people, let's be, I mean, be really bloody about it. I think, what do I know? But I think they've got the people. It's the equipment that they need, and I think they might be short of that. And, and, and probably ammunition as well. They need and to have a certain rationing too, yeah. of, of that. Yeah. Um, on the opposite side, in, in the, on the ground, Russians perhaps are learning some of the lessons of the disastrous war. Um, Putin, however, seems not to be learning the lessons. And anyone who can understand the original and saw his speech last week to a bunch of Z patriots and bloggers, it's absolutely unhinged. And there's been a lot of speculation that even to the most ardent supporter of the war, or even Putin supporter, 
it's quite clear that he was detached from reality, he has no clear idea what's really going on. And it suggests that either he's become unhinged or he's getting extremely poor information from sycophants or probably a combination of both. Yeah, and we saw that at the, in the, at the start of the war, which we touched on at the beginning of this conversation with the with the uh, reports from Narishkin that uh, everything was good to go, in F- FSB, everything was good to go and uh, all was well and lack of tolerance for any other any other news and yeah we well, saw that in plain sight last week too uh, but but look uh, there, there's something to be said for almost um the visual metaphors if you like and one of them is putin uh 30 or 20 meters away from his cabinet uh receiving formalized reports which presumably he had before uh, against uh, against Zelensky, uh, you know, in a room five meters by seven, poring over maps next to his commanders, and uh, uh, there's a metaphor in that. And, uh, whereas Stalin in the Second World War got over that, having murdered many people for giving the wrong messages initially, not least General Tuchov, Marshal Tuchovsky, probably would have won the war from on his own. Um, he got he got the message pretty straightforward and pretty quickly. He needed to get, take uh, take advice from people who did know what they were doing, namely, uh, in that case, Zhukov and Rokosov, Rosakovsky and others like that, um, who were tough men and very capable, not casualty averse, to put it mildly. But Putin doesn't seem to have taken that on board, as we see last week. I've no doubt at all, by the way, that there are fine Russian commanders. Uh, I know people who've taught them and these are not stupid. I think perhaps just that the the ones who uh, should have risen by virtue of the uh, evolutionary rules of combat uh, are the wrong ones. Yes, and I think in a nepotistic system, uh, actually being innovative and uh, having a strong opinion uh, actually relegates you to the lower orders or pushes you out of the system entirely. And that's one yeah. of the problems, isn't it? Yeah, it's not it's not a problem, shall we say, confined to Russia. Uh, I wrote a book about that concerning Iraq, Afghanistan, our own good generals, uh, perhaps the best of whom uh, did not quite reach the top. Let's say. Another aspect of of, of Stalin, uh, not that I want to you know, really praise him in any way, but at no point did he cede the monopoly of uh, state control over violence. And this is an extraordinary aspect we've seen of Putin in the last couple of years, and that is the rise of the private military company, um, the rise of oligarch-controlled sort of security and military interests. Um, Does this hint at some fundamental fragility and weakness of not just the Russian state, but also Putin's grip over it? Yeah, and also t- touches on that gangster element too. You know, Prigozhin, as everyone knows, was it's known as the chef, was was indeed uh, the caterer for uh, gang structures in in St. Petersburg, gangsters, gangs in St. Petersburg in the nineties, and a friend, at least until quite recently, of um, Vladimir Vladimirovich, as I understand it. They aren't the only private military company, by the way, on the line. There are others, notably one called Sparta, I believe, which holds the line although not in such great numbers, to the south of Baton, which were held, uh, this is a month or two ago, I don't know where they are now, but there, there, there is this, uh, of course, what that, that speaks to a, a client state, 
it speaks to a corrupt uh, polity uh, of cronies, friends, and uh, uh, and criminals. Uh, very literally, you know, the Russian prison population to come down a, an operational level to the tactical. The Russian prison population reduced by their own lights, by their own figures, by somewhere between ten and twenty thousand last year. I think many of whom are now uh, lying dead in the ruins of Bakhmut. And something else you mentioned there, which I think is 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 interesting, and that is uh, that Ukraine has its own military traditions. It has perhaps a generational shift from the sort of Soviet mindset to more sort of NATO training. What it's also contending with is something that Western armies don't have to contend with, and that is a vast array of different equipment, mm. um, much much more than, than than anybody, let's say, in a, a British, Finnish, or whatever professional arm would have to face with. So many different varieties of equipment. I would assume the manuals and instructions in a variety of languages as well, um, but also the reports are coming through that actually some of the equipment supplied has been uh, defective. Um, and then actually a lot of equipment that's been promised has simply not come through and contracts have not been enforced or chased up. So what what is going wrong there? And add this to the, to the extraordinary challenge Ukrainians have of really getting to grips with this vast array of different equipment. Right. Well, that's a result of one thing, and that's a result of the lack of determination or uh, or um, uh, unitive effort of the West, and specifically the United States. So, to give an example, the uh, Ukrainian army, as I understand it, has either 13 or 14 different types of um, tracked, uh, tracked 155mm artillery pieces. 155mm, that's Western artillery pieces. Right? They've also got 152 Soviet types. Now, the 152 artillery has one art, one one round or one series of rounds that fits them the 13 or 14 types of western artillery all or mo- mo- many of them take different kinds of shells so the reality is let me just give you uh, an illustration you are there on the front you have your <laughs> allocation of a couple of hundred shells for the day your battery perhaps even slightly more you fire them off and you order, or you uh, put in a requisition for some more that will arrive tomorrow morning. There is a glitch at the at the uh, front 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 uh, the um, uh, regimental uh, logistics centre where one load of artillery shell, one fifty five millimeter artillery shells, gets confused with another. <coughs> you have your M triple seven, whereas five miles up the road, somebody else has an M one o nine for argument's sake, which is a tracked. It looks like a big tank. Uh, self-propelled artillery system. So your shells get sent there and their shells get sent to you for the day. And the result is that it's likely to be disaster in that case. Now, they've managed to avoid that on any large scale, but it has happened. And that's going to happen when you have multiple platforms like that for one function. And that, in turn, is the result of a failure of the West to say, you know, we'll give you, we'll give you lots of different kinds of systems to, 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 to tide you over. And eventually, the ex-Soviet systems will be washed out, will be flushed out of your army over the next few months. They will, by the way. But what we're going to do is we're going to shore you up. But then what we're going to do is we're going to supply you with one platform, which will be, for argument's sake, and I'll come to why, the M109 tracked self-propelled artillery gun, artillery piece. 
800 of which are currently sitting in US storage, at least. And furthermore, they have uh, now, uh, depending on how you count them, between 30 and 40 different types of tanks, five or 10 of which are Western, or each of which has its own logistics chain. So if it won, your, your leopard throws a track, it's no point in having a challenger track. Spares uh, fixed on them, they're not going to work. So in that case, it's beholden, surely, isn't it, to Ukraine suppliers to say, well, what we're going to do in the medium, short to medium term, the next few months, is supply you with several hundred Abrams tanks, two and a half thousand of which sit in US storage. Now, you can't just pull them out of storage and put them on the line, but you can stream them in. You can turn the faucet, as the Americans would call it, on and start feeding Abrams tanks into the system so that by this time next year, in two years, because this war isn't going away, and as we've said, the Russian threat isn't going away, by the end of that, you have a strong force of one type of tank, of one type of artillery system, supplemented perhaps by others in the odd regiment here or there, but that's okay, and so forth, and go on into armoured fighting vehicles, the Bradleys, of which another 2,000 sit in US storage, and so on. You get the message. The trouble is that this hasn't been done. What's being done is that people are, 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 are conducting this war as if it's going to end sometime later this year and everybody can then go home. And that's not going to happen. And it's simply not good enough, for example, to say, well, the Ukrainians lost 16, as they did, Bradley's in the first wave of their recent assault. OK, so we'll replace those 16 sometime in the next couple of months. The message must, must be we are going to replace all your armoured fighting or infantry fighting vehicles over the next year and give you a complete fleet of armoured fighting vehicles and infantry fighting vehicles and tanks, which were designed to kill the kind of tanks you're trying to kill and which are very difficult in themselves to, 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 um, to take on. That is not happening, which gives me great concern, by the way, for how things may be the end of this year, the beginning of next. And even when that political will kicks in, the training, the shipping of this equipment, getting it to the front, creating the logistics lines, I assume you are, you know, even when that decision finally gets made, uh, reluctantly people drag in their feet, yeah. you're still maybe months away from that equipment actually being usable and having right. an impact. Right, but you can make a start now, it should have been done a year ago. And as I said, we're not talking about here transporting hundreds of tanks over and there you go, uh, they, they, they now have a new fleet of tanks. It's replacing uh, losses with uh, with new or uh, newly available tanks or whatever kind of vehicle it is we're talking about or platform. And that's not being promised at all. It's a drip feed of, for example, let's give you an example. So I think there are 34 Abrams tanks been promised. Not 2034, by the way, at some point, but 34. Abrams tanks are currently not being deployed by uh, the Ukrainian army because they're not there. They're currently being refurbished. So 34 tanks are being refurbished, wherever it is, somewhere in the west coast of east coast of America, and uh, they'll be delivered in autumn. As far as I know, there's no word that another 200 will follow in February and 500 will follow this time next year. No, 34 by autumn, sometime then. By the way, the same applies to the Leopard tanks, which have been, uh, which of course were the subject of so much controversy earlier this year, and which to some extent triggered those Abrams, or sorry, vice versa, wasn't it? Um, nobody should be under any illusion that the Ukrainians are going to get a couple of thousand Leopard tanks. That's not going to happen. They aren't. They aren't there to give. But the Abrams are. And what puzzles me, I cannot understand it, is why the US haven't bitten the bullet. And it's not a very hard bullet, and said we're going to arm you into the medium term 
to make you safe with these platforms so you don't have confusions of logistics. They're very capable. They will defeat the Russians and they will uh, and they're extremely resilient and will supply the logistics as well because we have it in place. None of those platforms, just to finish this peroration, will ever be used against the Chinese in the event of a, a, a dust up with them, which is likely to happen in a few years. They will rust in the desert otherwise. Uh, those decisions haven't been made, which asks goes back to the question which you started with, which is, do we have a coherence of strategy here? Do we really want them to win this war? Do we really want them to retake their land and secure themselves into the future and thereby secure the rest of us? I don't see evidence of that in the medium term, frankly, right now. So we're still arming them to survive, not, right. not thrive, right. necessarily. You put it better than I ever could, as the bastards used to say. And following on from that as well, if we are just sending them stuff that is in storage and not even all the stuff in storage, we're not necessarily um, building supply, you know, the, the factory supply lines. Um, so is there any investment there? Is, it, is there any thought that actually, you know, we need to be scaling up, not for total war, but for a far bigger scale of commitment to arm not just Ukraine, but also ourselves? No, I don't see that. I can speak only to, to the Brits. Uh, it may be a shock, and it certainly is a shock when you speak to East European colleagues that the British Army can can deploy two mechanised brigades with some tanks to Eastern Europe. It would take several months to do so. Two brigades, about 10,000 people and uh, 100 tanks or so. Uh, that's the British Army, the vaunted British Army. I won't even start on the Navy. It's not even worth it. Uh, uh, as for uh, rebuilding that force to some kind of uh, credible uh, deterrent, deterrent force, you're talking about a period of between five and ten years to do it. And by the way, there's no sign of any political will that that's on the way. Yes, there are efforts, no doubt about it, to increase the production of ammunition. And those efforts are highly credible. They seem to be uh, in train right now. Uh, the purpose of which, of course, is to, to ensure an ammunition supply, both to Ukrainians and, of course, to ourselves. The trouble is, in the case of the British Army, which I can speak to a little bit, uh, uh, we have 12% of the artillery we had in uh, the weight of artillery, which means the weight of fire, the number of shells you can fire at the enemy, 12% of what we had in 1989. Roughly, uh, we've 15% or so of the fighter force, maybe 20 at a push. If you count their bet being better fighters, maybe you can say 30 possibly at a push. 30% of the air force, as if you like, what you had in 1989 with a similar threat, or even perhaps, as we now know, a lesser threat. Um, uh, the, the, we won't go with the Navy. And the same is true of all Western forces, not excluding the Germans, whose um, so-called shift and um, uh, beefing up, if you like, of investment will result in very trivial uh, increases in capability. Now, the problem is, in the, in, in, you know, in the, in, in, in the late 20s, what we're going to see, and there's no question about this, is, is the US start to withdraw from Europe to what they consider to be their strategic priority, which is the Western Pacific. No doubt about this. Americans have said as much. They'll leave a couple of fighter wings here and two brigades or so, and they will rely on the Europeans to defend themselves, as they very well should. That will have, uh, and, and I don't think people have grasped the reality of that yet. The only people who have are the Poles and the Baltics, and of course, the Ukrainians. We haven't, the French haven't, uh, the Germans haven't, the Italians haven't, which are the main uh, uh, and indeed only significant military forces, notwithstanding the Norwegian Air Force, in the, um, in the alliance at the moment. Uh, I stand fast, by the way, the Finns, 
course, who who, uh, who who will be able to defend themselves quite nicely. Finns and Swedes seem to take these matters a little more seriously, yeah. perhaps. Um, well, my last question might seem academic, given that the probing operations that we're seeing in the counteroffensive are not you know, delivering these big PR news headlines that perhaps we might have expected if we were watching, say, the Kherson offensive or Kharkiv and the retake of those. My question really is that, you know, if this really starts to gain some traction, how are Ukrainians planning to avoid the risk of outrunning their logistics and commands, uh, you know, their, and the command control, uh, as we saw happen uh, when Kherson and Kharkiv was taken? Um, and how would they plan for the, you know, huge capturing potentially of equipment and prisoners, as well as Russian casualties, if we suddenly did see some sort of surge um, in their uh, offensive when it really scales up? I've no doubt at all that they've done the staff work for all of those things. I've cer that's certainly the case with respect to prisoners of war, uh, and uh, it, uh, which is my sort of field. I've spoken to the, some of the staff officers involved. Uh, I can't speak to the capture of equipment. They've, as you know, the largest single donor of tanks to the uh, Ukrainian army so far has been the Russian army with 530 of their tanks captured and now turned around and used against them. It says something about the uh, uh, numbers coming from the West. Uh, as for outrunning their logistics, I don't see that happening. I think they're, they're more than capable of doing the staff work to, to organise that properly. I think there is a slight concern, though, of them outrunning, and we've seen this already, outrunning the, um, their air defences. I think that's one of the, I won't say lessons, but one of the messages they're going to take and, and um, uh, listen to, if you like, from operations over the last two or three weeks, that uh, they're going to need a lot more in the way of uh, ground-based air defences and organic ground-based air defences. That means missile systems, by, by the way, that you take forward with you. Uh, they also, I suspect, will be, as we speak, recalibrating their electronic warfare campaign. And I think they've uh, the, one of the difficulties they had without getting into the tactical details from what I understand is that the, the electronic warfare capability of the Russians have, have uh, prevented the Ukrainians from using their drone, extensive suite of drones. I suspect they'll overcome that. But as to logistics, uh, no, I, I've no, no concern about that at all. They will, they fully understand the uh, requirements of this. They've spent a long time planning for it. They've spent a long time on staff work. They know how to do that. Uh, the question is, can they make the breaches necessary? And when they do, these will be good things to worry about. And it sounds, I mean, to, to, to conclude, um... It sounds like we're sort of 50-50 on this, uh, that a Ukrainian victory in their terms is by no means assured, and that perhaps the West does not have a clear view of what victory it wants to see. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. And war is contingent on millions of individual circumstances anyway, so victory is never assured to anybody. But uh, I think the Ukrainians, have the Ukrainians have done all they could. The question is, have we and will we? the West. And that's a, an interesting place to end. I think uh, if we regroup in a couple of months time, some of those questions will become a lot clearer. But I want to say thank you so much on behalf of the audience. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I strongly encourage people to, you know, see see your interviews and appearances on, on the media when you when you do those. Thanks very much, Jonathan. It's been an absolute pleasure. And there'll be links to your books, of course, in the description, which everyone is encouraged to, uh, to buy. Thanks so much.
Thank you, sir. All the best.